We are going to transition to our passage this morning in Matthew, doing double duty this morning. So it's Matthew 15, 21 through the end of the chapter. If you can turn there, it's in, uh, on page 821 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 15, 21 through the end of the chapter. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came, begging him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right? It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Madigan. Good morning. If you weren't awake already, you are now. It's good to be with you guys here this morning. Glad to be sharing time with you in community and worship as we approach God's word. I'd love to open with prayer. Lord Jesus, I I pray that you would soften our hearts during this sermon, that you would um, give us a a new alertness to, um, to the... To those who are outside of your kingdom, or more specifically, those we consider to be outside the the reach of your kingdom. Pray, Lord, that you would um, give us a a fresh perspective on on the, the mission of salvation as you have been unfolding it across history. And we thank you, Lord, that you drew us in into a, a, a new people. 
in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So in August of 2017, folks both on the left and the right were pretty horrified by the events at the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. Obviously, there was violence there, but there was another reason why why both sides of the aisle found the event pretty troubling. A certain phrase reappeared. A certain phrase reappeared at the Unite the Right rally, and that phrase was blood and soil. Blood and soil. The first time that that phrase appeared, it was was a motto used in Germany. It was originally used during the, the rise of Hitler's Third Reich, Blut und Boden. It was a phrase backing the supremacy of the Aryan peoples over specifically Jewish folk, but, but really anybody who wasn't of Nordic ancestry. The phrase expresses this kind of commitment to tribe above, above all else. So blood, like a commitment to your ancestry. Soil, a commitment to your place. Blood and soil. And it now functions as the motto of what's called the alt-right. David Nuremberg is a historian at the University of Chicago. He's done a lot of his research in like different kinds of violent racism over the ages. He specializes in anti-Semitism, but he kind of does it all. He writes, Seeing the image, images of the Charlottesville protest made me feel that ideas I had treated as very marginal in our society are not as marginal as I had hoped. In other words, he, he feared what seemed to be the rise of, of violent racism right in our time. Now, many conservative thinkers have, have pointed out that the alt-right is a very small population, and, and, and many thinkers don't think they're anything to worry about, and I, I hope that's right. There's, there's research that you know, would suggest that. There's research that, that doesn't. But events like Charlottesville remind us of the disasters caused by an us-and-them mentality, you know what I mean? A, a sort of tribalistic commitment to your own ancestry, your own place, your own political partisanship, whatever, that ends up alienating those around you. And yet, despite the fact that, that, that an us-and-them mentality is so— well, really because an us-and-them mentality is, is so wrong— Many of us are very sensitive to the fact that this passage seems to support it. Jesus here at the beginning seems to be calling a woman a dog just because she isn't Jewish. And so many folks who think that the Bible is a racist document, or at least a document that sort of implicitly supports racism, many will cite this passage as proof that that even Jesus, the founder of Christianity, was himself Racist. One commentator puts it this way Jesus' words here are brutal, offensive, incredibly insolent, the worst kind of chauvinism. Many might categorize Jesus' words as a racial slur. And so I want to begin today by sort of helping us to approach this text in what I think is the right way and what I think is a healthy way. First off, if you are here today and you have experienced the effects of racism, or the effects of sexism, particularly from people who claim to follow Jesus, I want you to know that my heart grieves for you, and that the heart of God grieves for you as well. Like, we here at at Trinity want to be a support and a safe place for those who have been victimized by an us-and-them mentality. We want no part in that kind of mindset, and neither does Jesus. And believe it or not, that is actually the point of this passage. 
Today's passage is not included in Matthew to reinforce an us-and-them mentality, but rather to subvert it. Under the kingdom of Israel's Messiah, there is no us and them. And so we're going to see three ways in which the passage subverts an us and them mentality. We'll spend most of our time, vast majority of our time, on the first one because that's where Jesus says the most controversial stuff. And then the last two will be pretty quick. So first we see that the grace that overflowed to us overflows to them. Let's reread verses 21 to 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. That's a majority Gentile region, by the way. Majority non-Jew region. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away. She's crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So I'd like to show an image. Diana, if you can bring up the the image on the next slide. So I apologize, first off, to the artists in the room. This isn't the best drawing, but that's not the point. I want to to point out what, what it reads here. So this was something that was posted by a pastor in Columbus, Ohio. And for those of you who, who can't see it if the words are too small, it says, Jesus understood justice more deeply because she insisted that Syrophoenician lives matter. So when this same story shows up in Mark, Mark uses the term Syrophoenician to indicate where this woman is from. So it says, Jesus understood justice more deeply because she insisted that Syrophoenician lives matter. So that's kind of how this pastor interprets the story. So here's his interpretation. Jesus shows up on the scene, right? Jesus is trying to demonstrate the kingdom of God, but he's also like most Jewish rabbis. He has a whole bunch of unconscious biases. He doesn't like Gentiles. He's kind of chauvinistic. In other words, Jesus is like any other human. Lots of unconscious bias. So this woman turns up, and Jesus thinks she's kind of an undesirable, so he turns her away, or at least he tries. But in this pastor's interpretation, she heroically pushes back. It's this mother doing anything she can for her child. And what she does is she, she shows Jesus that the, his message of love will be hypocritical unless he extends that love to all people. And so she corrects his gender racism, and Jesus changes. Jesus has, he's humble enough, good enough to change, and he does change because of her faith. And that's why he says, how great is your faith? Let it be done to you as you desire. And so Jesus understood justice more deeply because she insisted that Syrophoenician lives matter, Canaanite lives matter. And so, I know for for many of us, this is going to be highly triggering. Let's try to engage with this in a very charitable way. I think we can all understand why this kind of interpretation would be compelling to many people, right? I think we we can sympathize with why this would be an attractive way to make sense of what seems to be Jesus calling this woman a dog. In this version of the story, Jesus starts out as a racist, a sexist, but the faith of this woman changes his heart, and from that moment on, he stops being racist and sexist and becomes the Jesus we know and love. 
So no disrespect to this pastor in Columbus, Ohio. I think he's completely missed the boat. Jesus, as far as I can see from the text, is not the way he's describing him. So this whole idea hinges on the idea that up to this point in the story, Jesus has been xenophobic and he's been racist. That's what this whole idea hinges on, right? The, the whole idea is that, like, well, this is the moment when Jesus changes, which means up to this point, he's been a gender racist. Doesn't like Gentiles, doesn't like women, and then after this, he's different. So for this pastor to be right, Jesus has to be a gender racist leading up to this moment in the book. So let's test that theory. Let's test that theory for just a couple minutes, and we'll take it one category at a time. So first... Let's ask, does Jesus have an issue up to this point in the book of Matthew with non-Jewish people? doesn't seem like it. For one thing, the only reason why Jesus meets this woman in the first place is because he intentionally goes into Gentile territory. He's intentionally walking into the region of Tyre and Sidon into Gentile territory. So he's actively seeking to be among Gentiles. Aside from that, already in chapter 8, we saw Jesus heal the servant of a centurion. This dude wasn't just a Gentile. He's a Gentile oppressor, high-ranking military official in the Roman army, and Jesus heals his servant. Later on the same chapter, and the servant was likely Gentile as well, by the way. Later on the same chapter, he actually goes into Gentile territory for the first time in the, in the book, the region of the Gadarenes, it's called, in which the major industry is pig farming. There are very few things more Gentile than pig farming, right? Jesus actively seeks out this territory, goes there, heals a man who's demon-possessed, and also likely Gentile. So already Jesus has shown a willingness to heal and help Gentiles, to be among them, and so it seems super unlikely that Jesus is a racist. How about sexist? Well, let's see what Jesus has already done up to this point. So he's obviously healed women, like Peter's mother-in-law, the dead daughter of Jairus. Raise her from the dead. One woman actually approaches him with a bleeding disorder, so she would have been ceremonially unclean to Jesus, and Jesus is unoffended by the fact that she touches him. He refers to her as daughter. He heals her and, and, and takes care of her. When Jesus tells a parable on the kingdom, one of the examples he, he uses to flesh out what the kingdom is like is, is through a parable about bread-making. At this time, bread-making was a task only done by women, which means what audience is is he speaking to as he tells that parable? Women. Jesus is speaking to them. He's dignifying their experience and, and, and using their experience to illustrate truths about the kingdom. Last thing I'll mention, earlier in the book, Jesus wants to bring up an example of someone who exemplifies real faith, and he brings up the Queen of the South as somebody who who exemplifies a a faith greater than than many of the people he's seeing in Israel. And the Queen of the South, like the Canaanite woman, she's not only a woman, she is also Gentile. And so it seems to me like Jesus isn't sexist either up to this point, but actually dignifies and honors women and challenges many of the prejudices of his day. He is a proto-feminist. He consistently reaches out to people on the margins of society without exception. And so if Jesus is that intentional to reach across racial lines, if he's that intentional to dignify women, including Gentile women, including intersectional women at this point, then we need to ask if something else is going on here apart from ignorance and prejudice. Right? 
we shouldn't jump to, oh, he's a racist and a sexist. Instead, if he's saying something very provocative, the intellectually responsible thing in my mind is to ask, what is Jesus doing with what he's saying? Because everything indicates he is anything but a gender racist. And so, I'll tell you one thing that this pastor in Columbus got absolutely right. He gets absolutely right that this woman is awesome. She is exemplary. Jesus thinks that she is worth imitating. And it's not because she recognized Jesus for who he needed to become. It's because she recognized Jesus for who he already is. Let's check out what's going on. Jesus has just had this encounter with the Pharisees. You remember that from last week over cleanliness. He says some things that offend them because they think he doesn't care as much about purity as they do. And in a sense, that's true. He's going to prove just how true that is by now walking into Gentile territory, being among unclean people. He withdraws into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And as he walks along in this region, he's followed by a woman, and she's this mother who's desperate. Her daughter is demon-possessed. She wants her daughter to be healed. And right from the get-go, this woman seems to understand something about Jesus that many within the nation of Israel were very slow to understand. And you can tell right from what she calls him. She says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. It's really curious that she calls him son of David. That was a very, that's insider lingo. It's insider lingo among the the Jewish peoples to refer to Messiah. They call the coming Messiah son of David. So she reveals something about how she thinks of Jesus. She reveals that, that she thinks Jesus is the Savior, that he's the Savior of Israel, but also the Savior of her. She thinks he is operating by the power of Israel's God. And I think that's why Jesus decides to do what he does here. In that little statement, she shares something that Jesus wants to draw out. She shares something about her perspective that Jesus wants to make public. And he does it through this really, really provocative statement. Or or really just a whole mode of relating to her for a few minutes. Ignoring her first, indicating that he's come to the lost sheep of Israel. And then finally, that statement that is, is so unpopular. It isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Let's talk about that sentence real fast. It isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. So this statement encapsulates a whole lot of how the Jews thought about the non-Jewish world. So in the Jewish mind, and they're right about much of this, God had specifically called them out to be the bearers of his presence, to cooperate in bringing his salvation to the world. The Jews were sort of particularly called for this special vocation. God promised them a savior. They were meant to embody the way of of Yahweh. And so it would be wrong in their minds to take the inheritance, do the children, and give it to the family pet. That's ultimately what what Jesus is is indicating. That's kind of the, the mood of the day. And Jesus repeats that mood back at this woman. Now here's the thing. So Jesus says what everyone thinks is true, but he does it to get her to show what's really true. Jesus says what everyone thinks is true to get her to show what's really true. And it's kind of like this. Imagine like a high school gymnastics coach, right? 
And there's a particular athlete on the team. This athlete's coming out of maybe an under-resourced situation, right? Like he grew up unappreciated, underestimated by everyone around him. The odds are against him, but he's got this coach. It's training him, pouring into him. But as the academic year continues, pressures are, are getting higher and higher. He's, he's not getting encouragement from, from his friends or, or from, from his family or whatever. And so he's getting ready to quit gymnastics and give in to the pressure. And so he tells the coach his plans. And what if the coach were to reply at that moment, sure, fine, do, do it. You know, no, nobody that comes out of your neighborhood is worth anything anyways. What if the coach says that? And what if... The coach is using those insulting words because it's what everyone around them implicitly thinks to be true, but the coach actually doesn't believe it. What if he's actually saying those words to get this athlete to prove what's really true? And, be, and by saying it, it draws the athlete out. He gets back in the game and fights harder than ever. Jesus says something provocative, but he does it so that this woman will show what's really true. And the reason why I think that that's what Jesus is doing is because he's already done it once before in the book of Matthew to a Gentile, the Gentile centurion in chapter 8. He's drawing out these outsiders, these Gentiles, to reveal that they know something the Pharisees and religious authorities have forgotten. Salvation is from the Jews, but it isn't for the Jews only. From the call of Abraham on, God's blessing was always meant to go out to the world. What Jesus is drawing out is the fact that these outsiders are part of the true people of God. The true people of God at the end of the day are those who worship Jesus, not those of any particular ethnic group. They are those who know and follow the Lord. And Jesus is making that public by drawing out the centurion, by drawing out the Canaanite woman, And how does he do this? So Jesus says, it isn't right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. He says something that everyone around them thinks is true, so she'll show what's really true. And she does. She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. What is her understanding of God? What does she reflect about her understanding of God? She believes that the blessing and the grace that comes through Israel's God is so great, it's like this giant feast arrayed on a big table. And there is so much food. Like, notice the way that she talks about it. It's not that the crumbs are falling, like, from the children's mouth as they're eating. Crumbs are falling off the table. Like, the the image that she's using here, like, the table is so full of food You can't keep all the food on it. Food is falling off the ends of the table. The table of God's blessing in Christ is so abundant, so full, food is falling off the edges. There's so much, the table can't even hold it. There's more than enough. There's more than enough for the Jews. There is more than enough for the nations. There is more than enough for us. And she sees it. So do we have this view of Jesus? Christ is overflowing in grace. He is not lacking in power. He is not lacking in compassion. He doesn't need to, like, (laughs) ration out forgiveness. He doesn't need to ration his love for us because it's not running short. It is grace upon grace upon grace. 
and we will never exhaust him by our neediness. We will never surprise him by being insufficient. The salvation that began in Israel is pouring itself out to us in Jesus. And this woman sees that the Pharisees missed it. The disciples were blind often too. And that's why Jesus says she has such great faith. Just like the centurion in all of Israel among God's own people who should have known better, this kind of faith isn't present. They don't have this view of God. They don't have this view of Jesus, that the power and blessing and welcome of the salvation of Christ is more than enough to draw in all the nations. They don't have this view. But she does. She sees that the kingdom was never meant to be limited by class or ethnicity or partisanship. There is no in-crowd with the kingdom because apart from God's grace, we are all outsiders. The kingdom that overflowed to us overflows to them. I wish I could go on and say more. There's many other ways in which this whole motif is is developed across the book of Matthew. And uh, for any questions on that, ask Steve Bryan. (laughs) Second, the Messiah who came for us is the Messiah who came for them. So verses 29 to 31. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So keep in mind here, this is still happening in the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is still happening in Gentile territory. This passage is pretty similar to others that we've seen. It's common for Matthew at at the end of a section to kind of have like a summary, like a healing summary where he just says, and then Jesus did a bunch of other healings. So usually like just one short paragraph. We actually saw it just at the end of chapter 14 as well. In some ways, there's not much to say about this moment that hasn't already been said before. And that's the point. There's not much to say about this moment that hasn't been said before in previous sermons, and that's actually the point. Every other time Matthew has done one of these healing summary things, it's been in a Jewish setting, somewhere around the Galilee region. And now we're in Gentile territory, in a Gentile community, and there is no difference. The point is that the same kind of healing, the same kind of compassion, the same kind of self-giving love and power and hope that Jesus brings to the Jews, he is now bringing to the outsiders. The God who loves us is the God who loves the world. The Messiah came for us, who came for us is the Messiah who comes from them. And so from the get-go, God's intention was always to bring salvation to the nations. And you actually see this right from the beginning of the Bible story with Abraham. When Abraham is called, God tells him that God is going to bless Abraham in order to extend that blessing out to the nations, that every family in the earth will be blessed. So Jesus launched the church to be a multinational, multicultural, multi-ethnic assembly of all kinds of people, all being folded in by the grace of God in Christ, and we have the historic global church to prove it. What do I mean by that? From the beginning, Jesus' movement has been 
working its way, massaging its way into cultures across the globe. It's been doing it from the beginning. There are monuments in India dating back from the first thousand years AD commemorating the day when the apostle Thomas and his disciples made their way into the nation states. There's a tablet in China that dates back between 600 and 800 AD remembering the day the Nestorian Christians brought the gospel there. There's actually been recent research that suggests that medieval Christian missionaries brought the gospel to Japan with such an impact that even after the shogunate exiled all Christians in the 1500s, leftover Christian symbolism was being discovered all across Japanese practice, including the tea ceremony. Crosses were being found under decorative stone lanterns. The way of Jesus had adapted itself into the culture itself and glorified it. The people of God were meant to be one people made up of all peoples. And that's, just not, that's not just me spouting Christian propaganda. Like, the reality is noticed by antagonists of Christianity. Like, this reality about Christianity is something that people use to hate the faith. So at the beginning of the sermon, I briefly talked about the alt-right and the idea of blood and soil. So allegiance to ancestry, allegiance to land. It was the motto of the Nazis. Now it's the motto of the alt-right. Here's something interesting. Typically, we think that conservatism and organized religion, specifically Christianity, we think that conservatism and Christianity go hand in hand. The alt-right is a huge exception to that. In fact, the alt-right is critical of of Christianity. Uh, Peter Beinart is a professor at the City University in New York. He wrote a really interesting little article called Breaking Faith. If you can bring up the quote, thank you. So he he writes this, the alt-right is ultra-conservatism for a more secular age. Its leaders like Christendom, meaning the old-fashioned word for the West, but they're suspicious of Christianity itself because it crosses boundaries of blood and soil. One essay notes that critics of Christianity on the alternative right usually blame it for its universalism. Peter Beinart is not a Christian. He's just reporting on, on what he's seeing. In other words, Christianity is not white supremacy. Christianity does not operate like the Islamic State. It does not unite all peoples under one cultural norm. It unites all cultural norms under one redeemed people. So I'll say that again, that does not unite all people under one cultural norm. It redeems all cultural norms into one redeemed people. And that's the paradox. Christianity is exclusive, and it is universal all at the same time. Christianity is exclusive because, because salvation comes through Israel's Messiah and him alone. But it is also universal because there is no culture that is beyond the reach of the gospel and no culture that is beyond redeeming by the gospel. The new creation will be overflowing with customs from across the ages and across the globe. In Revelation, it talks about the kings of the nation bringing their goods into the new Jerusalem. Their cultural and artistic achievements are somehow redeemed for the worship of God. The new creation 
will be cacophonous with thousands upon thousands of languages and tongues. It will be vibrant with the dress of thousands of nations, folks wearing the beadwork of the Maasai and Yoruba, the wraps of Nihong, the plaid of the Scottish tartan, the Japanese kimono, the headdress of American First Nations, the lazy flannel and jeans of Mike. They will all be represented in the new creation, and all of it will be redeemed as an expression of the endless creation and goodness of the creator, Christ will play in 10,000 places. And this isn't some survival tactic. This isn't some survival tactic that Christianity learned early on to gain converts. It has been there since the beginning. It is our blood. It is the roots of our tree. From the beginning, Jesus has been venturing into Gentile territory. The Messiah who came for us is the Messiah who comes for them. Finally, the mission sent to us sends us to them. Verses 32 to 39. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowds because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. Now I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. And then directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. They all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan, which is, again, a majority Jewish region. So he leaves the, the Gentile region. So now this is the second time in Matthew where we find Jesus feeding a massive crowd of people. We talked about the first one. Uh, Just a couple sermons ago, Jesus has compassion on the crowds and instructs the disciples to feed them. And the disciples, like, obviously don't have enough. And it's funny to me that even after the feeding of the 5,000, they still don't assume Jesus is going to multiply the bread, right? They're still asking, how are we going to feed these people? As as though Jesus' miracles are like, hey, you only get one, and then you got to do it. (laughs) Right? Which clearly, that's not how he operates. So here, as before, Jesus feeds the crowd. He multiplies the bread and the fishes. And I want to reiterate the way that he does it. I expanded it in a previous sermon, so I I don't want to bore you guys by doing it all over. But I just want to reiterate the, the way that Jesus does it. He breaks off the pieces of the bread, and he hands it to disciples. He fills their hands. They have to go to Jesus and get their arms full of provisions. And then they have to go to the crowds and give what they have received from Jesus until they are empty-handed again, and they have to return back to Jesus. And so they become what one pastor, Colin Smith, calls runners for Jesus. They're taking the bread to the people. Disciples don't give out of their own abundance. They give out of the abundance of Christ. The scene really plays out exactly as it did before. The scene really plays out exactly as it did with the feeding of the 5,000. And once again, that's the point. We're in Gentile territory. And the scene plays out just as before. Jesus feeds all those people. 
the abundance of Christ that fed the Jews goes out to the non-Jews. And notice the number of the baskets. So the numbers are important. When Jesus was feeding a Jewish crowd, how many baskets were left over? You guys remember? Twelve. Twelve for one for every tribe of Israel. Now it's seven. Why is it seven? So here's a curious thing. Seven in, in like Jewish numerology, symbology, it symbolizes completeness. Symbolizes completeness. Seven is the number of completeness. And so the idea is that the people of God will only be complete when the nations are invited in. The true Israel is not just ethnic Israel. In Christ, God is inviting all nations and peoples to become a part of his family. And the way that that God is extending that invitation is through Christians whose arms have been filled by the abundance of Christ, emptying themselves, bringing Christ to those around them, taking food to a hungry world. In January, we, we rolled out some guiding principles for for us as a church. And one of them was, was this idea that, that we are sent to cross barriers. What do we mean by that? What that means is that while, while all of us are called to make disciples, some of us will choose to pursue that calling in a very particular way. We'll be a, a very specific kind of disciple maker who will cross barriers of language, cross barriers of culture, cross barriers of place, in order to bring the gospel to those who have not heard it yet and invite those people to become a part of God's family. That's the role of church planters and missionaries. And here's why that's especially important for us to think about this morning. Most of us in this room are non-Jewish, ethnically. Most of us would be considered Gentiles. And the reason why we are gathered here today is because somebody crossed a barrier for us. Somebody crossed a barrier so that you would be part of God's family. Trinity Community exists because God's people brought the gift of the gospel across the globe. Now, I want to say some of that went with tragedy, with colonialism, with conquest. And and that's a terrible thing. I'm not discounting that. But not all missions were like that. And even in the middle of the ones that were, God's spirit set aside believers who truly followed him and demonstrated his kingdom. He preserved the gospel on the slave ships. And his people crossed barriers, and we are the result. And that's why we as a church take global missions seriously. Some of you in this room actually have a background in global missions. Some of you may be considering career. And I encourage you to consider global missions, to be someone who crosses barriers. And we as a church want to be a support and a source of courage to those who do that. The gospel must, must cross barriers because the mission that was sent to us now sends us to the world. So to wrap up, in Jesus' kingdom, there is no us and them. The world needs this. Culturally, we're we're at this moment where we desire unity, we desire diversity, but I don't think we have a lot of the resources to accomplish it. But in Christ, we do. Last year, I I had this experience. Our former pastor, Dan, invited me to go with him on a trip to Memphis to attend what was called the MLK 50 conference. 
And it was really good. Like a lot of you were listening on the live stream even while they were there. And that was pretty cool to feel connected with you while we were attending the conference. In any case, we got there the night before. And so we had time to kill and we decided uh, to go explore Beale Street. So famous street in Memphis, if you don't know what Beale Street is. The whole place smells like barbecue. It's... I would like to be there now. It's a wonderful place. Like, awesome music. I mean, like, bull. And so as we're walking down Beale Street, and, like, we had just, we had just eaten dinner, um, not on Beale Street, and instantly regretted it. But, like, just the smoke, I mean, it was great. So um, the smokers are going. As we were walking down, it was, it, was, it was cool to see. So Beale Street, the crowd that night was probably one of the most diverse that I've ever seen. Right? Like, Black folk, brown folk, white folk. I mean, it was, it was folks from all sorts of different ancestries, some who were immigrants. There were many folk who were, like, representing parts of the African diaspora. I mean, it was just this, like, wildly diverse crowd. So it was just cool to be there. But even though all these people were sa- sharing the same street, they weren't sharing the same conversations. It was really interesting. Beale Street wasn't segregated but it was racialized. So the black folk were talking with black folk, white folk talking with white folk. It was a racialized street, despite its diversity. But the next morning, Dan and I went to the conference, and it opened in worship, and we showed up a little bit late, and so we, we were walking in and walking down these aisles, and you're able to see everybody in the rows and see it, the people ahead of you, And this crowd was just as diverse as Beale Street. But they weren't just sharing space, they were sharing lives. The people that we were seeing were coming from the same churches. And they were crossing racial and ethnic lines. And all of us were lifting our hands to worship Jesus, the Lord who gave bread to Canaanites. And it just struck me that all of us in that room need forgiveness, we need healing, And we have all come to the same source to find it. And I remembered as I was standing there that in the cross of Christ, we are united together in a way that the world cannot manufacture. Because in Christ, we have this identity that can bridge beyond our individuality, not to eliminate ethnic identity, but to redeem it all and bring us all together under an identity that crosses all our other identities. We are reconciled not only to God, but to each other. And I stood there with Dan and with Christians from all over the world, and I worshiped. And it was a vision of what the church is meant to be, and in many ways what the church is. It was a vision of what we as Trinity Community Church want to be. We are the people who follow the Lord who gave bread to Canaanites. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that in the abundance of your grace, there's more than enough to bring us together. And so, Lord, I I pray that Trinity Community Church would be a place of healing for those who have experienced the destruction caused by us and them mentalities. I pray that we would be a place that reflects the increasing diversity of our county and of 
Libertyville itself, in fact. And I pray, Lord, that we would be able to walk the tightrope of that paradox well, that, that we would proclaim to the world that all nations and peoples are welcome in Christ, but they are only welcome through Christ. That as a, a, a congregation, we would be welcoming the nations in as you did, that we would go to you to receive grace and we would bring that grace to the world. We love you, Lord, and we thank you that you drew us in, that we are here because somebody crossed a barrier. So, Lord, I also pray that you would raise up more barrier crossers, even here in our midst, that we would be a church that supports and equips them in a way that will make them ready to bring the gospel to a desperately needy world. Pray that you would not let us deceive ourselves into thinking that we aren't still needy. But that we would repeatedly go to the source of life. Love you, Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. Amen.